So Paul here has one very clear goal for us today in Philippians 3, and that is for you to have a correct identity based in Jesus Christ and absolutely nothing else. So we have three points. He's going to come at this from the perspective of describing what a false identity is, what a true identity looks like, and then he's going to tell us the inevitable outworkings of what's going to happen to you once you have that true identity in Jesus. So he starts out, Philippians 3.1. Here comes Paul's false identity. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. I'm sorry, I'm getting jumped ahead already. Um, so he starts out. I, I write to you the same things to you that is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul starts out by talking about these people, these people, these evildoers and these dogs that he's talking about. These are people who back in his day thought that for you to be an appropriate Christian, you needed to become more Jewish. It was, it was purely a, a racist, exclusivistic viewpoint of things. And part of that becoming more Jewish was you had to become circumcised. And Paul is, has none of that. You do not need to be circumcised. Jeremiah says that you can have a circumcision of the heart. You don't need to be literally circumcised. And Paul has no patience for these gentlemen. In Philippians 5, I'm sorry, in Galatians 5, he, he has this other part where he's also going at these people who think you need to be circumcised, and he does it in, in frankly, one of the awesomest ways possible. This is one of those times when you can't believe this is actually in the Bible. But in, in Galatians 5, he essentially says, hey, if you think circumcision's so great, why don't you just go ahead and cut the whole thing off and go varsity, and that would be great. And that is... That is one of the most ridiculous things you could ever hear out of the Bible, that he's telling these people to go and emasculate themselves. And the great thing is, so we have a responsibility as Christians to be gentle, and, and I think in most of the times we have a call to be exactly that. But then at the same time, if you run into dogs and evildoers and people who want to distract you from the mission of God, we have permission to act extremely harshly with them. So now, here's the part where Paul talks about his false identity. The great thing about Paul is that he goes from kind of being a salty guy who's going to kind of bully these guys in a good way to immediately being humble the next second. He starts out, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So this is Paul's false identity, and we don't have time to go into each one of these points, but all of these things point to him being really special and really neat and really awesome. People would want to be like him. People would want to be with him just because he is that awesome. This is a fantastic resume. Now, what makes this false identity bad and what makes false identities bad for all of us goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We look and we see Paul, or we, we see Adam and Eve and the serpent having a conversation, that terrible conversation that ruins it all for us. And what does the serpent say? He essentially says, don't you want to have an identity like God? And everything gets ruined and goes south from there. So what we need to see is that a identity is foundational to our sin problem and understanding of the world around us. And Paul here is talking about his resume. He's built a great resume that even the serpent would have, would have been envious of. Paul has a great false identity. So what this looks for each of us, looks like for each of us, when we have a false identity, 
it might look like having a, a, a really great job, having a really great LinkedIn profile. And eventually, at some point, your annual review is not going to go all that well, or the company is going to go out of business, or something's going to happen, and, and, and you're going to be crushed as a result if you put your identity in your vocation. Or some of you might put your identity in what you see when you look in the mirror in the morning and think that, I, I like what I see, or I don't like what I see. And that's either going to crush you, or it's going to build you up, and eventually you'll be crushed because age is going to win, and things are going to go south, and skin's not going to stay where it needs to stay. Or it might take place in the, in the area of possessions. You might look around your house and kind of say, I'm, I'm embarrassed by what this looks like. And you're going to go out into this world in this really weird way and you're going to be crushed because there's always going to be some rapper, some football star who's going to have more than you. And this even kind of takes place in the world of religiosity. For, for Christians here in the Bible Belt, what this looks like sometimes is in the area of guilt where we say, I missed my past 30 years of quiet times or three years of quiet times. And you're going to go out into the world feeling guilty because you've built your identity on performance which is not Jesus, it's the opposite. I remember idiotic 12-year-old Mike Nelson kind of thinking through um, my, my sin problem and my identity, and I remember thinking these exact thoughts. Man, if I could just stop cussing for a while, I would go out and I could, I could really give this Jesus and church thing a try again, which is ridiculous for so many reasons. But what I was doing, I was placing my identity on my performance and not on Jesus. Jesus does not ask for a performance. On the other side, on the good side of things, what this can also look like is in our theology, where sometimes some of us might be, well, listen, I bought all the John Piper books, and I listened to the White Horse Inn podcast, and I've got really great theology. And that, too, can also be bad at some point, because at some point you're going to sit there and go, I've got this, I don't need Jesus, I've got John Piper theology. And that's not the point. Jesus asks us to, to have our identity based on Jesus alone and not anything else, even if it's good. And what Paul is driving at here is that he wants your heart because good theology, achievement, and, and, and beauty are all great things. They are all great gifts from God. But when we take those and place them up above Jesus and make them ultimate things, that's when our hearts have gone awry. But the good news is, is that Jesus has given us his identity. And so here's what a true identity is going to look like. Off on a slide. Alrighty. So a true identity. If if you look back at Philippians 1, the best commentary on Philippians 3 is Philippians chapter 1 and 2. And if you look back at cha uh, chapter 1, what is he calling the Christians in Philippi? He's calling them saints. That's, that's amazing. If you're a Christian here today, this room is filled with saints. And the horrible thing that I hate that our Catholics brothers and sisters have done is they have so corrupted that word that we hold saints apart as some sort of super pious holy men who are somehow different from the rest of us. And that's not the case. The words exactly in this scripture here today from Paul is that if you are a Christian, you are a saint. So Dean, everybody needs to meet Dean. Dean's a really nice guy. He's sitting back there. He's a Christian and he is a saint. And it's not because of anything great he's done, but great that what Jesus has done through him. So when you go after service, go up and meet him, but don't you dare say, hello, Dean. You need to say, hello, St. Dean. <laughs> All right, Dean? So tell me if anybody doesn't introduce themselves properly. But what I want you to do, please think of this. 
and let this hit you for a minute, that you are the apple of God's eye. And that should really, that, that should knock us back on our seats. And, and, and honestly, myself included, my cynicism blocks that from time to time. Your God who created you loves you deeply. And that should change everything. So cosmically what's happening here, just so we can get the, the good nitty-gritty theology out of the way, is here that, that you are a sinner and you cannot do a thing to fix your sin problem. You are dirty and corrupt and nothing's going to fix that with the exception of one thing, the man of Jesus Christ. That is God put on flesh, he came to earth, died on the cross, and took away that sin from you. Now as a result, we get his righteousness. So when we go into judgment before God, what does... what? What does God see? Does he see your filthiness? No, as a Christian, he sees only Jesus in his righteousness. And this is where I think Christians get this wrong sometimes. There's, there's this thing called the doctrine of total depravity, and it's really good. When I was an early Christian, this, the doctrine of total depravity was, was awesome. Because what it tells me is that, that, that because of Adam, I cannot resist sin. And it's really good news and should be joyous because what it does is it frees me to say, I don't need to be perfect anymore. Jesus is going to do that for me. But we're Christians, and I'm sure some of us in the room, myself included, get this wrong, is that we hold on to that total depravity and we keep going into our Christian lives thinking that we are dirty, defiled people. And we are not. We are holy, righteous saints. This is, this is exactly what this is like us doing if you hold on to your depravity. It's like a child who gets a present and then they end up just playing with the box and ignoring the gift. Now the Bible has a huge host of things to say about you and who you are. So we're going to go through each of these real quick. There's going to be 12 verses. And what I don't want you guys to see here when we go through these are just hallmark hug statements that make you feel good for a few minutes. What I want you to see is this is hardcore systematic theology that should go and change you dramatically and change the way you lead your life. This is the God of the universe who created you, stooping down and pointing to you saying, here's what I think about you. So number one, Ephesians 1 through 5 says that you are a child of God. He predestined us for the adoption to him as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glory, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is good news. You're not just in the family, you're adopted into the family, which means you were in sin before you were saved. You were gross and defiled, and, and you could do nothing with God. God cannot associate with that. But what he has done, he has covered you, he has cleaned you up with Jesus, and he has brought you to the family and given you a seat at the table. Ephesians 5, one, uh, verse 1, it says, Therefore, be imitators of Jesus as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us. You are dearly loved. That's amazing. I, I think all of our pursuits in life probably come down and can be boiled to, down to our attempt to, to seek out and find love. And all of that, everything around it, if it doesn't have to do with Jesus, can be bound up to somewhat of a waste of time because Jesus' love is the only one that matters. Romans 8.39 says that you are lovingly pursued. It says, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
you as an individual were pursued by God. This wasn't just some kind of like backdoor thing where God said, all right, everybody over here can get into the, get into the family, as though we were kind of in batch, placed into the kingdom of God. He loved you and came after you specifically. The next one, this one's awesome. John 15, 15 says, Jesus is our friend. No longer do I call you a servant, for the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from the Father I have made known to you. So what, God, what Jesus here is pointing out in the Gospel of John is that, is that you're not just some employee who gets marching orders and go, gets this much of the picture and goes and does whatever you're told to do. You are a true friend. You are told what's going on. You are told how this world is broken, why, what God is doing, and how he is going about saving you. And that's great. It, Jesus, this is a conversational thing. He gave us scripture to talk to us. And that is wonderful news. This next one's crazy. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says that you are God's residence. This one blows my mind. Do you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? That, is, that just blows my mind. Being the holder of the most, one of the most valuable things ever, God's spirit, like that's not a job you give to a fool. Ephesians 1.4 says that you are chosen and blameless. Even as he ch chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Have you guys done anything bad in your life? I don't, you know, I don't really like going to my high school reunions because I, I, I became a Christian and had a, became, had a identity in Jesus really after high school, and going to high school reunions just sounds like an awful experience to me, because that's not who I was. I, I don't even have a frame of reference for having a conversation with those people anymore, because I'm different. But you are blameless. You should not have any shame in that which you've done in the past. You are holy, Ephesians 4.24, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Fantastic news. You're holy. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that you are a new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in, in Christ, he is a new creation. And I think what this one teases out for me, that's a little different from just, hey, I did a bunch of stupid stuff in the past, and, and God forgives me for that. Some of you, statistically, have had terrible things done to you. Abuse, rape, you are not dirty. You are not that person. of the, what, You are not defined by those bad things that have happened to you. God has made you pure and holy apart from those things. You are a new creation. <clears throat> Romans 8.37 says that you are victorious. <clears throat> and it says... In all, thing, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You were fought at for a price. Th this whole salvation thing that Jesus did was not just a secondary thought where he's like, meh, okay, you're, you come into the family. This was a conscious effort to go and fight and win, and God came down, put on flesh, suffered and died for you. And that's a big deal. Satan, sin, and death were defeated for you. 
<clears throat> Hebrews 13.5 says that you are never alone. It says, be content with what you have, for he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Nobody likes being alone. And we always have Jesus, no matter what that looks like. <clears throat> First Peter 2.9, you are God's precious possession. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. If you are a Christian, you are set apart. You are something extremely special. You are a priesthood. And the hard, thing, the hard news here is that if you are not a Christian, you have not been set apart yet. My advice to you is if you are not a Christian, you need to become one and enjoy these glorious things that, that God has given us. And the last one, this last one's huge. This last one's awesome. John 10, 28 through 29. You are eternally secure and never forgotten. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch, you, will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. This is fantastic news. You cannot lose your salvation. There's some terrible theology going through even in Christian churches today that says that if you swear or do something bad enough, you're going to lose it. And so you better repent every time you have that bad thought that goes through your head or you flip off the guy as he's driving through traffic and cutting you off. Like, don't be afraid of that. You are eternally secure. And so what it, this is getting at, what the Bible is about and what we sometimes forget is that the Bible is not, here's a list of things to not do, but is instead, specifically when it comes to you, is here's a list of really glorious things that we get to rejoice about, about God. So back to Philippians. Philippians 3, 7. But whenever I, whatever I have gained, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake. I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So Paul is coming at this from the metaphor of, a, of an accountant where he has two sides of his ledgers. One is a ledger that's filled with all of his accomplishments and his resumes, his big house, his, 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 uh, his race, his, everything about him, and he puts that in one column. And then he has another column, and the only thing in that column is Jesus. And he says that everything in this achievement column is just absolute rubbish compared to Jesus. Now, if you do any sort of word study on the word rubbish here, the interesting thing here is that the people who are looking at the original text and translating the Bible for us, they're using a really soft, gentle, kind word in rubbish for us. Really, what, it, what Paul's using here is a very harsh, nasty word. Some translations of the Bible will actually replace rubbish with the word turd. Now, if you, if you take that in mind and then compare that in addition to Isaiah 64, Isaiah is talking about, similar to a false identity, he's talking about self-righteousness. And the, the comparison that he uses there to, to pair with the turd comparison, Isaiah says that your self-righteousness, your false identity is like a used menstrual rag, which I feel awkward talking about with you guys. <laughs> 
But that's gross and disgusting. And the reason God used gross and disgusting things in the Bible is because he thinks that our self-righteousness and our false identity is that gross and deplorable. <clears throat> but Paul goes on to tell us where we can get our, our true righteousness. Philippians 3, 9, verse 9. <clears throat> and be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, faith is one of those words that you need to understand very well here because a lot of times Christians get wrapped up in talking about faith in the sense that faith is, by def is defined as, I don't know what this is, so I'm just going to blindly close my eyes and trust it. And that's blind ignorance. That is not faith. What the Christian faith says is that instead, if we know that God loves us. We know that God thinks we're holy. We know that we are righteous saints, and we're going to go out into life and act differently based on that. Faith is going out and acting on that which we know. So here's, here's, here's kind of the, uh, the value chain that God gives us. So we go to Scripture to find out what God has to tell us, and Scripture alone can tell us what God tells us. And then by faith alone... We gain Jesus' righteousness. We learn from Scripture that faith alone, we get righteousness. And that righteousness comes for free from Jesus by grace alone. We cannot earn it. And that grace comes from Jesus alone because nobody's going to solve this sin problem except for Jesus. And all of this is for the purpose of giving glory to God alone. That is the value chain that we as humans are called to, called to participate in. So we have three areas of response. Once you have a correct identity in Christ, there's going to be lots of things that happen to you. We have time to talk about three. The first one is that <clears throat> you are going to change the way that, that you see yourself. If you have a faith or if you have an identity based in culture, you will be defined by culture instead of Jesus. Now imagine if you wake up in the morning, instead of your joy and happiness and, or sadness and bitterness being determined by the quality of your social calendar, you instead wake up, look in the mirror, and see a friend of Jesus. And what that's going to change is, is that when you go out into the world, you can get fired, company can go out of business, you can lose all your friends, even stupid stuff like, you know, you put up a Facebook photo and nobody likes it, and it will completely unfaze you. You know that none of that matters, I don't know if you're like me. There are times at work, and Monday's coming tomorrow, and all of the world is going to revolt against me, and I know it. And I'm just going to have to, I'm going to have this opportunity that unsaved people who are not a part of Jesus have. I can sit back and go, my true identity is in Christ, even if it's me who's horribly screwing everything up. So I, I think to try to get at what it looks like to have a life that's based with an identity of Jesus. I think Charles Wesley and his hymn, um, And Can It Be That I Should Gain. This is, this is absolutely beautiful and I think paints a much better picture than I ever could have with what it looks like to have a life based in Jesus. It starts out, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eyes diffused in quickened ray, I woke the dungeon flamed with light. And these next two lines are my favorite lines. <clears throat> my chains fell off. My heart was free. 
I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Still, my, still the small inward voice I hear that whispers all my sins forgiven. Still the atoning blood is near that quenched the wrath of hostile heaven. I feel the life his wound impart. I feel the Savior in my heart. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Now this picture that Charles Wesley is painting does not look like this insecure life where you're concerned about your looks or your possessions or your LinkedIn resume or anything like that. It's a, it's a life characterized by strength and security and joy and assurance, which is a beautiful, much more satisfying life than any other life out there. So number two, when you have a correct identity in Jesus, you will begin to look at those people in the church around you much more differently. And really, if you were here last week, you're, you're going to be ahead of the rest of, of everybody else. But Jason unpacked this great part of scripture where he pointed out where Paul took these people like Timothy and held them up on a pedestal and said, hey, people of Philippians, if you want to see what a life looks like centered on Jesus, look at Timothy. Great things are happening with Timothy. It's not because Timothy's all that special. It's because of Jesus doing great things in and through him. And then what Jason did that I thought was perfect, he, he called out people in this room, in the body of Crosspoint, and pointed out how Jesus was working in their life. And he said very nice complimentary things about them. But the, what we'll get wrong is if we look at them as compliments about those people. What we should see, what he was doing exactly and explicitly and was doing so well, was he was pointing out what Jesus and glorying at what Jesus was doing in those people's life and through them. It is much more than handing somebody a Hallmark card. And this is why God made church, made the church, and didn't make Christianity a solo project. It's because we as Christians have an opportunity to bless other Christians by pointing out those things that God is doing in their life. Now imagine if you take that to grand scale and on a regular basis with your wife, with your community group, with everybody around you, you're saying things like, I love that you love people like this. Not because you're all that loving and special, but because Jesus is giving you this loving heart to do great things. Or it might come out, um, you know, you have this great gift in your life. That's amazing. And it's not telling that person, wow, I'm glad you studied hard and worked and pulled yourself up by the bootstraps. But it's that God who gave you that gift. And as Christians, we need to think through this. We need to point people to Jesus. And as we point people to Jesus, that God will get his glory. And when God gets his glory, we will get our joy. So number three. <clears throat> This third one is probably the little bit, a little bit more difficult to get at than some, so I hope I do an okay job here. But when you have a proper identity in Jesus, you will have a correct, you will have a kingdom view rather than a self-centered view of the world around you. Now, the groundwork that needs to be done to explain this is, I think in Christianity, specifically American Christianity, we've taken a couple of things, um, mainly our pursuit of heaven and raised it well up above our pursuit of the kingdom of God. But if you look at the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus spends a whole lot more time talking about the kingdom of God and building the kingdom of God than 
our need to go to heaven. Yes, we are going to go to heaven. Going to heaven's good. Pursuing that is good. But just think of getting that out of balance. And oftentimes, I'd say specifically in Peachtree City, where everything is so nice and neat and wonderful, we lose perspective of the kingdom of God and focus only inwardly on ourselves. But Jesus' life here on earth was the start of a kingdom-building project. And when you see pain and suffering in the world, you along with your secular friends sometimes are going to back up and say, why doesn't God fix this? Watch the news, Syria, or drive by a homeless shelter, terrible things are happening in this world. We ask, why God, why don't you fix that? And that comes into our misunderstanding of one, our identity, and two, our understanding of the kingdom of God. So here's how that works. God, when God goes out to build his kingdom of God, he doesn't send in the tanks. He doesn't instill democracies or Marxism or flower power marches. What God does is to build his kingdom of heaven is send in the meek and the mournful and the justice hungry. Now, that's from the Beatitudes, and the descriptions of the Beatitudes, what we get wrong when we get this disproportionate view of kingdom of God and, and our identity and going to heaven is that we read the Beatitudes that say, blessed are the meek, blessed are the mournful, and we think that those are descriptions of what needs to happen for us to get to heaven, and that's absolutely the incorrect reading of the Beatitudes. What instead we should be seeing is when we see blessed are the meek and mournful, we should see a description of the agents of God who are going to go forth into the kingdom, into the world, and build the kingdom that Jesus has asked us to. It's completely inverted for the way we, you have if you have this self-centered view of I need to get to heaven and that is my one and only focus. And Paul ta- in, in, earlier in Philippians, Paul talked about um, you know, to, to live as Christ, to die as gain, and none of us have died lately. So apparently there are other things for us to be doing. Now, my favorite, I think the, the best vision of this can be seen in Nicodemus. If you remember Nicodemus from John 3, he's the guy who, gets, um, who, who comes to Jesus under the cover of night secretly to kind of learn from Jesus. And he gets dropped on this huge bit of knowledge of you need to be born again. And it's awesome. But then all of a sudden we don't see John, Nicodemus for a while. He just kind, of, just kind of disappears. But then we see him again in chapter 7. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and all the Pharisees hated Jesus. And him and all his Pharisee friends are standing around saying, we need to arrest Jesus, we need to go and get him. And Nicodemus kind of goes, oh, guys, wait, let's just back up for a minute. Shouldn't we just hear him out? Can't we just hear him out? And he gets knocked down for that. But the important thing that we're seeing here is that in Nicodemus, his false identity based on his Phariseeness and his and his lawness, there are cracks in that false identity, and his true identity in Jesus is starting to leak out into the world. And so then the last time we see Nicodemus is in John 19. Jesus has died, and Nicodemus is spending tens of thousands of dollars in spices and all that good stuff to bury Jesus. And he's making a public profession that he is going to act differently at the cost of his friends, his vocation. That is the best transformation in the world because what you see when you have an identity that is based in Jesus, like Nicodemus, it's going to get out into the world. A true identity 
project that you should be thinking about when you think about your own identity is not some sort of rearranging of your private interiorities and stopping there. Your identity in Jesus should be something that gets out into the world. Now, this isn't a command from Paul. This isn't, all right, now everybody, try harder and go out and do it. Solve world hunger. Great. What Paul is saying is that when you have a true identity in Jesus, something's going to happen. It's going to be crazy. Some of it's going to be joyous. Your value system's going to change. And by the way, some of it's going to be kind of hard. Some of those hard things he's going to talk about here. Philippians 3, 10 through 11. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What Paul here is pointing out is there's going to be activity after you have the right, right identity. And in all honesty, nobody dies from hiding Something's going to happen, and you're going to be called to get out. But I think how this is going to practically happen for each of us is this, is we're going to sit back, we're going to quietly listen to the Holy Spirit because we have a true identity that's based in Jesus, and we've wiped away those other distractions. And what, Jesus is, what the Holy Spirit's going to ask us to do is get out and get in front of those people who are suffering, who are in need, and who do not know Jesus. And when we go out and get in their way, we are going to be brick by brick building the kingdom of God as Jesus has asked. Not by, not by him, somebody convincing us to do it, but because we want to do it, because the Holy Spirit has changed us. A Jesus-centered identity will lead to listening and guiding. Now the first part of that verse, that I may know, this, is, this should be an echo for all us all in 1 Samuel for, uh, Chapter 3, verse 9, and this is that iconic part of the Bible where Samuel goes, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So a true identity will, in the end, lead us to listening. And this is not a command, this is purely an assumption, that that listening will likely lead to you getting out, and giving your identity to the rest of the world and making it known.